locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Thank you for joining us here on this Friday, April 14th. We are now just two weeks away from rejoining the 2023 Formula One World Championship. Sitting with me, my my friend, my neighbor, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. And we were just... We were just chatting a little bit about our Wi-Fi challenges in our beautiful <laughs> suburb, beautiful leafy suburb of Vancouver. But my friend, how right. the heck are you? Oh man, good. But I've been like super crazy busy this week. Like I feel like I, I just go from one thing to another to another. Then I go to bed and then I get up in the morning and do it all over again. So yeah, I wish I could get some rest this weekend, but I'm going to be away all weekend. So, you know, no, may, maybe next weekend I'll get a chance to rest before we finally get back to racing here in, in two weeks. It's it's weird. We got like this summer vibe, summer break vibe here in April, but it doesn't feel very spring-like here in the Pacific Northwest. It still kind of feels like we're, we're about a month behind schedule. Meanwhile, I get pictures from family back east that in Ontario, for example, it was like, was like 25 degrees today. It's just like complete polar opposite, literally, to what the, the the weather that we're having out here. You being away this weekend, by the way, is the perfect segue into giving a little bit of an update about how our shows are going to look over the next couple of weeks. So if you didn't see, if you didn't check your feed, you probably should. We dropped a, not a secret, what's the right word? Surprise pod last night. We sat down with Seth Whiteberg. We did a review of the 2013 Rush Picture directed by Ron Howard. Super, super fun. I hope you guys enjoy that. Uh, obviously, you and I sitting down here, we're doing our weekly news show. This weekend, I'll be sitting down with Adam Burns, of course, of the DNFF, DNFF1 podcast. We're going to get into the season to date, talk a little bit about some of the predictions that have gone completely haywire. We still have a show coming up with John Orovitz, and we're going to be talking about Indy, his book, Indy Split specifically. Next week, you'll be back. We'll sit down to mm -hmm. our weekly news show, and then I'm going to be joined that weekend by Sam Cooper. We're going to do our way too early Formula One report cards <laughs> heading in, heading into the return of the F1 season, because of course, the weekend of the 28th, 29th, 30th, we will be back, and we're going to be in Baku, and it's going to be the first sprint race of the season. Plus, we got tons of other stuff coming. Shable F1 Techie from Mina GP is going to be joining us in early May. We're going to do F1 Power Units 102 or 201, whatever you want to call it. A follow-up <laughs> yeah. to the episode we dropped last summer. MotoGP 101 is still coming, I promise you. And of course, Book Club returns with Hamilton, Daly, and Bird Pinkerton. Early in May, we're going to review how to build a car. So lots and lots of good stuff happening, even though the break is here. My friend, I know you are slammed. You are during the busiest time of year. I can't wait for your summer break. I put that in quotation <laughs> marks, but I can't wait that till the summer. So you can, I start linking up and doing some fun stuff as well. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's going to be busy for the next probably month and a bit, but the, the light at the end of the tunnel is there that I, I'm looking forward to really planning for the, the, the fall and then getting some time off over the summer and investing some of that time into I dude like I really was upset I couldn't do the rush thing with you and Seth Aww. this week because that's one of my favorite movies like just in general not just uh, because it's an awesome F1 movie and Seth is just uh, such an awesome guy and just really knows his, uh, his you know, <laughs> you know th that like the showbiz part right so I'm really disappointed that Daily, didn't work we, out but we enjoyed so it 
we so could have used it because I, I think we received not necessarily criticism, but feedback that we were probably a little too down on on the movie. And we provided some real technical explanations, but it would have been nice to have you there to balance, to counter some of the negativity that we had about that film. So I, I think maybe you can do that here remotely in isolation of the podcast. You, <laughs> you likes Rush. Give me your 30-second synopsis, your 30-second review of the 2013 Ron Howard film Rush. It was good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on, as you would say. No, I mean, joking aside, I mean, it's one of those iconic eras in Formula One, uh, you know, that 1976 uh, season with, uh, you know, James Hunt and Nicky Lauda, Nicky almost dying, and then at that horrible crash at the Nürburgring, and then, you know, by, you know, survives by some miracle. I mean, the story itself is just, uh, it, it, it's unreal. And just in general, I, I think that Ron Howard encapsulated in, in basically a two-hour nutshell. I think he did a very, very good job to encapsulate all those different stories that played out over the course of almost an entire year into 120 minutes or whatever it is. And of course, there's always... Uh, you know, there's going to be some artistic license and some things that, uh, you know, you kind of have to, you know, modify it to sort of, you know, fit the time frame and make the story flow a little bit. I mean, that's what the pros do when it comes to writing a, a movie script and things like that. But I thought in general, I mean, the, the effects were good. I think everything was fairly, you know, era, you know, it was, it, it looked great. I mean, the Ferrari 312T is just one of the most beautiful Formula One cars of all time. Uh, just don't let Charles Leclerc one or drive one at a classic Grand Prix at Monaco because did he not one put one into the Armco barrier last year, the year before I think he did is made me want to cry. But I mean, it's, it's a great movie. You know, I, I really enjoy it. It does have some little bits and pieces that could be a little bit tidier, but without kind of like jumping back into rehashing the fine job that you and Seth did, I, I think just in general, I, it, it's a good show. I was I was chatting a little bit with uh, one of our listeners, by the way, Van Allen yep. Plexico. I was chatting with him a little bit because he sent he slid into our DMs and made a comment about the fact that yeah, you guys you guys didn't love the film, and and again, I'm taking liberties with what he said, but I think my opinion is it's and it was Seth's as well. The film is hugely mm -hmm. engaging. It's hugely entertaining. But I think it was asking a lot of the writers and the producers to pack that much story right. into two hours, right? That for most people sitting down to watch this, including myself, I, I didn't have the foggiest idea of who Nikki Lauda was as a race car driver or James Hunt, that you needed you needed an hour just to set the table to step mm -hmm. into the 1976 season. And, you know, on Bill Simmons' Rewatchable podcast, they always talk about, hey, would this be a better 10-part Netflix series, like 10 one-hour episodes? I think this is the perfect example. If you could have taken those production values and that cinematography, and you could have spread that out over 10 episodes on Netflix, yep, yep. it would have been perfect. But all of that to say... I can't believe to this day, I still can't believe that movie ever got made. And I'm in, I feel incredibly blessed that that movie ever got made because it was, I believe strongly very much and probably not because we discovered during the podcast last night that Ron Howard wasn't actually in line to be the director. He did a film swap with somebody else to take over, but I'd always been of the impression that this was a Ron mm. Howard passion project, kind of like yeah. the podcast is for you and I. We're making <laughs> zero money here. We're not getting the ladies, but it's a passion project. Oh, I mean, we have ladies. We're both happily married, but you know what I mean? So I like how you hesitated on the happily part. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're, we're both dead after this. I don't want to speak Thank for you. you but uh, And we're not live streaming, right? No one can see my face. No, so. not tonight. No, tonight. <clears throat> Perfect. Not tonight. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> moving, moving on. Moving on. Nicely done. So segue into the next thing. Well, we, now we need to segue. This is the perfect time to talk about the Race Weekend magazine, The Race Weekend, R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Use our promo code ScuderiaPod at checkout and save 10%. We get a small cut, which we're going to eventually invest into our website and do some good things with that, hopefully. Also, check out uh, RaceExclusives.com for unique and one-of-a-kind and authentic Formula One merchandise. And, uh, well, do we have the, the fantasy standings? ready no i, I do don't think i so. do so you do most importantly cool. i am sitting 204th number one friend of the show mm-hmm. longtime listener of the show bengals bub number two charles cl number three mr saucy nug love the name number four radio check number five the bad guy one number six jesse h and then we have two teams tied at number seven team bs and jeff Payne. number nine l1 f1 number 10 nathan's team number 11 Gemma. Je m'appelle Yuki Merci. Number 12, Buenos Diaz. Number 13, Dream Saturday. Number 14, the Albon Knights. Also number 14, Red Ton Mart Bull. <laughs> and number 16, Olay's Linus. <laughs> so some familiar names, but again, I said this so much last year. We are only three races into a 20-race calendar. Anything can happen. And honestly, if you if you were Red Bull heavy, if you were Aston Martin heavy in your choices, you're probably going to be looking good right now. But that's not to say mm-hmm. that the successes of those drivers and those teams is going to continue. Obviously, Red Bull's going to have a breakthrough. Mercedes is going to have a red a breakthrough. Again, my point just being don't give up yet. It's too early. There's a lot of season left and anything can happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, moving over to the actual standings of the 2023 Formula One World Championship on the driver's side. Max Verstappen leading the way with 69 points. His teammate Sergio Perez is second with 54. Fernando Alonso from Aston Martin, third with 45. Lewis Hamilton from Mercedes, fourth with 38 points. And then Carlos Sainz, the first of the two Ferraris, currently fifth in the driver's championship with 20 points. Now, moving on over to the constructor's side, it's Red Bull leading the way with 123 points. Uh, Aston Martin, second, 65 points. Points from three races, Mercedes at third with 56, then you have Ferrari with 26, and the McLaren rounding out the top five with 12 points. All right, Mark, why don't we just um, jump into a couple of things here before we get into, well, we could probably kick off the... Um, yeah, well I, well, I don't know if we'll get into the meat of it because like the ne- the one story we're going to dive into, I think we're going to spend a lot of time on it. Let's just go over some of the fun things here. So the Australian Grand Prix, which we had just a couple of weeks ago, was the 34th time that Lewis and Max have finished 1-2 in a Formula 1 race. This is the most of any driver pairing in the history of uh, Formula 1. That comes uh, courtesy of Dankwings on Reddit. And then uh, from F1 Data Lab, uh, Aston Martin, Alpine, and Haas are topping the race pace gain in 2023. Uh, at the Australian Grand Prix compared to a year ago this time. Despite the wind tunnel penalty, Red Bull are making larger improvements when compared to Ferrari and Mercedes, which is, uh, there, there's a story about that that we'll talk about a little bit uh, later in the show. Um, so the race pace uh, compared from 22 to 23 at the Australian Grand Prix, Aston Martin, 
3.15 seconds faster than one year ago. That is amazing. Alpine 2.10 seconds quicker than a year ago, and then Haas 2.02 seconds, which is just uh, amazing. Uh, then uh, McLaren 1.49, Red Bull 1.35, Alfa Romeo 1.33, Alfa Tauri 1.25, Mercedes 1.2, Williams 1.15, and then Ferrari only 0.5 of seconds of a you know quicker than this time last year that's that's you know a bit amazing when you think about it so just uh, going back and uh, just a, a couple of high points on uh, the the Australian Grand Prix. So there was three uh, world champions on the podium in Australia with uh, 11 combined podiums. It was the most sorry, decorated. 11, my mistake. Sorry. My mistake. 11 so, combined championships. Championships. 11 combined here. ships. My, my mistake in the outline. So yeah. I just had to call that out. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, that was the most decorated podium in Formula One history because we had Max Lewis and and Fernando Alonso. That is uh, absolutely amazing. And that has uh, been Mark's 32 years since we last had three world champions on the podium at the same time. The last time that happened was with uh, Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, and uh, Nelson Piquet. And then Alonso's three podium finishes so far this season are as many as he's had in the past seven years combined. And that is uh, amazing. And it's the first time since 2013 that he's had three consecutive podiums. So patience for Fernando, which is something I never really, you know, thought was one of his better attributes is definitely paying off. I mean, first time in a decade that Nando has had uh, three consecutive podium finishes. So this is um, Lewis, the first time, the first person ever to score a podium in 17 straight seasons. Since when did, did, did Lewis like get 16 seasons under his belt? I cannot compute that. That is just absolutely yeah, I just I can't get my mind around it. He still reminds me of this fresh-faced youngster coming into Formula One, and that went just way too quick. And then finally, Max scored uh, for the 22nd race in a row. It's a personal best and the sixth longest streak currently in Formula One. So just uh, a couple here. Now, we always uh, are very grateful to to all of you that uh, leave us a, a rating and a review. And, uh, you know, we, we, we do remind and I would say beg, but it's not too far off. Begging every week. We, we remind. We beg. No, 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 so no, it's, we it's beg. begging. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we, we do try to, and uh, we, we do remember to give shout outs to those. The first one comes uh, from MB Dogs uh, in the USA. Uh, the, um, the the review is good content, but a little lengthy, four stars. Good all around F1 pod. They just cover ev- just about every topic and story in F1. Both Hamilton Daily are very knowledgeable. However, most episodes run about 90 minutes where they have maybe 60 minutes of content. A little more focus on quality over quantity would earn the pod a five star rating. Thank you for that. And and yes, we 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 know that we are a little bit long winded. We we kind of go off on a tangents I, here and there. I have I, so, I uh, feel I, a certain kind of way about that review. <laughs> one, it's awesome, and it's totally one hundred percent accurate. And thank you oh, so for much sure, for right? giving the review. I think it's important to understand that in the course of a week, the only time that you and I ever get an opportunity to sit down and talk is here. In the moment now, we jump in, we sit down, we talk for about 30 seconds, we jump in and we start recording. So part of this is just our weekly social routine that people kind of get a window into. <laughs> Pretty much, right? So we could do we could do an hour for sure. I mean, this segment could have been 30 seconds instead of 18 minutes, but I think it would kind of take away from the authenticity of our conversation. But I totally, totally get it. Um, I just think it's 
it's something going long is just a part of what we do and who we are. And it's how we socialize and keep our relationship strong. But great review. And I appreciate it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the second one comes from uh, John SP, also in the USA. Uh, five stars and uh, the, the reviews I've been listening to my commute for a couple of years now. It is entertaining, keeps me up to date on F1 News. They have great recaps of news from a lot of sources. This helps uh, prevent me on from wasting time on clickbait headlines. I highly recommend this podcast. So thank you thank both you. to John That's and MD awesome. Dogs. Much appreciated to, to, to both of you. So let's take a quick break here because, um, you know, despite, uh, you know, just uh, reading reviews saying that we were a little long-winded and yes, I, <laughs> and accurately, uh, so the the next one, I think, does bear a bit of discussion, a fair bit of discussion. Come on, get to um, the Athletic we're, Greens we're, ad read. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. So, okay. There we go. So thanks for hearing about Mark. We'll take a quick break, uh, break and we'll catch you on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Welcome back, everyone. And the first story here, this one is not really new. It's kind of been percolating up uh, for the last uh, week or so. And this goes back to 2008 and going back to the whole crash controversy with Nelson P.K. Jr. Now, Bernie Ecclestone, who for some reason is still around and still somehow finds to you know get the, his way into the media and... Um, you know, had some things to uh, talk about, uh, which was Crashgate. So this uh, happened when uh, the Nelson uh, Piquet Jr., who was a Renault driver back in the day, he was uh, uh, Fernando Alonso's teammate. He crashed during the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix, and this gave uh, an advantage to his teammate, Fernando Alonso. Anyway, so what happened on the 14th lap of the race, uh, PK crashed into the wall at turn 17. They deployed the safety car, and Alonso already made an early pit stop and was, uh, you know, by the time it was all said and done, he was in the, the 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 lead of the race, and everybody else pitted under safety cars and did all that stuff. Alonso went on to win the race after starting 15th, and PK afterwards said that it was just a uh, you know a simple mistake. And then you know sometime later, uh, PK is dumped uh, from, uh, by Renault, uh, you know after the 2009 Hungarian Grand Prix, and then he started making allegations that he'd been asked by the team to deliberately crash in the race to improve the the situation for Alonso. This uh, kicked off an investigation uh, into Renault by uh, race fixing by the FIA. And after the investigation, Renault were charged with a conspiracy and then were, you know, they were went to go and answer the charges. And then um, anyways, Fabio Briatore, who was, you know, a name in Formula 1 for many years, said they wouldn't contest the charges and announced that um, 
both uh, well, Reno stated that they wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, fight the charges. Getting a little mixed up here, and that um, Flavio Briatore and then the director of engineering Pat Simons, they had both left uh, the, the 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 team, so they were disqualified. But that was a suspended for two years, and then that was uh, pending any further comparable rule infringements. Uh, Briatore was banned from Formula events and FIA event or sanctioned events indefinitely, and Simons received a five year ban, which is kind of interesting when he came back all these years later to work for the people that basically banned him uh they were you know, these bans were subsequently overturned in a french court and although they agreed not to work in formula one or fia sanctioned event for a specified time as part of a later settlement with the uh, with the fia uh <laughs> ironically briatore returned to formula one last year as an ambassador and pat simons returned to the sport in 2011 as a technical uh, consultant for virgin racing and I, I don't know what his official title is now with with formula one itself but uh, it's 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 quite the thing. So that's the background because I know that's going back uh, quite a way. I know that uh, you know a good portion of the the audience here is Generation uh, DTS. So Felipe Massa, who ended up losing that uh, that championship in a very memorable season finale in Brazil, that was Lewis's first chip. Anyways, Massa's looking into legal options to see if there's any challenge available to him. Um, but I don't know at this point, I mean, this is not, I, I, I should say this isn't a legal thing, but it's not murder, right? Where <laughs> there's no statutes or limitations on murder, but I mean, this, this is something that happened a long time ago and it's, it's a sporting event. And basically the way that the rules are set up, um, that once that championship trophy is physically handed to that, uh, person who won the championship, like all doors basically shut. So Mark, I've tried to kind of paint the picture here. Why don't you pick it up and explain a little bit further, please? I think I think you did a pretty good job. And I, I think you did a really great job of setting the table and providing context. And now I'm going to provide even more context. <laughs> the, the, the remarkable thing about 2008, and if you listen to our book club episode last year where we di- did the mechanic with, with Mark Priestley, and of course, Bird Pinkerton sat down and did a fantastic job of helping take us through that book. But mm-hmm. 2007 was a unique year because that was the year that Fernando Alonso had hopped from Renault. Of course, he won the championship. He won the driver's title in 05 with Renault and then 06 with Renault. At the beginning of 06, before the 06 championship, he actually announced he was leaving for McLaren after that season. So he drove the entire 06 season knowing he was going to go to McLaren, still won a title. And then, of course, in 07, it went right down to the wire between him, Hamilton, and, of course, Kimi Raikkonen. But, of course, the 2007 McLaren season was a total mess because of the whole Spygate scandal. And, of course, uh, that was the year that McLaren were fined $100 million and they were disqualified from the Constructors' Championship. So he had a terrible experience with McLaren. Makes total sense. Didn't get along with Lewis. Didn't get along with the team. Was embroiled in the scandal. So he bounces back to Renault. Now, the Renault that he returns to is not the Renault of 06. And at this point in the season, and Singapore was the fourth to last race of the 08 season, it was also the first time we'd ever been to Singapore, he was in an interesting position because he hadn't won a race that year and he was kind of in a position where he could. And ultimately, what was 
what what took place is just as you described that the team basically gave orders to his teammate Nelson PK Jr. to intentionally crash because that would bring out a safety car and it would pave the way for Fernando Alonso to win the race. Now, the reason that all of this is relevant in the context of Felipe Massa is Felipe Massa finished that season one point behind Lewis Hamilton in the championship. Lewis finished with 98 points and Felipe Massa finished with 97 points. And of course, the way that all of this played out is it came to the surface, like you described in 2009, because Felipe Massa Jr., or not Felipe Massa Jr., Nelson Piquet Jr. <laughs> lost his job midway through the 2009 season. And obviously, he was very unhappy that he was being exited from his Renault job. And he began to vocalize what he had been asked to do the year prior, which was, again, intentionally crash your Formula One car to pave the way for your teammate to win a race. Like if there's anything that's scandalous, it's this incredibly scandalous. So he came out and ultimately it, it pushed. And it's funny too, because I think what we've learned recently is the FIA weren't even led by Max Mosley. They weren't even particularly motivated to investigate this because they thought really it's his word against Renault's. And of course, he's an angry, upset driver who's just lost his job. And they really had to be pushed to investigate this. But I think what we've discovered recently is that in an interview with F1 Insider, um, or at least in an interview that was documented by F1 Insider, Ecclestone has acknowledged that he actually knew during the 2008 championship what had happened. And it's been revealed recently that during the Brazilian Grand Prix in 2008, Nelson Piquet Sr. actually went to Charlie Whiting and said, at the, at the Brazilian Grand Prix, this is what happened. And he told him, knowing that he was going to tell Max Mosley. And of course, Charlie Whiting told Max Mosley, who told Bernie Eccleston, and the three of them sat on it. And there's a quote here from Bernie Eccleston. He said, and I quote, we decided not to do anything for now. We wanted to protect the sport and save it from a huge scandal. That's why I used angelic tongues to persuade my former driver, Nelson Piquet Sr., to keep calm for the time being. Back then, there was a rule that a world championship classification after the FIA awards ceremony at the end of the year was untouchable, so Hamilton was presented with a trophy and everything was fine. We had enough information and time to investigate the matter. According to the statutes, we should have canceled the racing Singapore under these conditions. That means it would never have happened for the championship standings, and then Felipe Massa would have become the world champion and not Lewis. And it goes on. So again, now all of a sudden, Felipe Massa, 15 years later... Is, is beginning to revisit this, right? Like this is new information that actually the head of the Formula One, the head of FOM and the president of the FIA knew in season during 2008 that this had happened. And of course there hadn't been an investigation, but they knew. And I think if you read into what Bernie's saying, if you scrub the Singapore GP off the calendar. And again, Lewis Hamilton finished third in that race and he accumulated six points. Felipe Massa finished out of the points because if you remember during his pit stop on that safety car, he actually exited unsafely with with the fuel hose still attached to his car. It was a total disaster, which robbed him the points that probably would have been sufficient for him to get the championship. So really forget the whole scandal. If he just had a better pit stop, he probably still would have accumulated enough points to win the championship. But ultimately now he's saying, wait a minute, I need to take legal action because maybe I was in fact robbed of the championship. But I think what's really at play here is that the statutes, the rules probably never would have scrubbed or disqualified the entire event that ultimately if 
the FIA and Formula One had taken action earlier, they probably would have just disqualified Renault from that race. So the rest of the classification would have stayed unchanged, except everyone would have moved up a position. But ultimately, that's what would happen. And I think what Felipe Massa is hoping for here is that entire result, that entire race is scrubbed from the championship forever. So Lewis Hamilton would lose six points, Felipe Massa would gain none. But because Lewis would lose six points, he'd drop down to 92 in the championship and Felipe Massa would remain at 97, giving him the title. The challenge, of course, is that there's no precedence for any of this, but Felipe Massa is going to push on, the aggrieved Felipe Massa is going to push on with legal action to try to understand what had happened, how much was known, and why action hadn't been taken earlier. But my impression is that even even if action had been taken postseason, in-season, the following season, I think at most the cheating team probably would have been disqualified from that race that they never would have they never would have scrubbed an entire race from the championship that is completely unheard of yeah so at this point i don't really know what uh, what recourse felipe massa could really have because it, it's not like a legal matter and well i guess it, it potentially could be but it's more of a sporting thing but it, it's it's very interesting but the the thing that i think felipe's maybe considering and the one president he might be wondering might have some bearing to you know this issue is he references Lance Armstrong and the fact that Lance was uh, removed as that that those seven Tour de France victories or whatever it was in the the early two thousands after it was uh, you know revealed uh, that uh, you know he was doping and and all that and they just but they vacated those uh, those wins so you know if you go and look from ninety nine to two thousand and five two thousand and six or whenever it was it just says that there's no winner the only other times that there was no winners in the Tour de France was in World Wars one and two where it just says it was suspended because of the war and you know obviously there was a reason for that um so perhaps you know felipe is is looking at that i think he does kind of acknowledge that that the that the chance or the you know the likelihood that anything you know he might find might be uh, um successful might be slim but you know it just to me at this point like, like why did you know why did Ecclestone go have to, you know, bring this all up at this point? I mean, at, at the very best, you know, I, I mean, I don't even know there is a very best for Felipe Massa. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, Mark. It's just like maybe he'll be successful in something, but I don't even know what that could uh, potentially be. It's it's crazy, though, to think that. At some point during the 2008 championship, presumably Brazil, because unless they knew before that, which would be even more of a shocking revelation, that we know definitively that Charlie Whiting knew at Brazil, and he told Max Mosley, who presumably told Bernie Eccleston, that they knew in season that a team had cheated and intentionally crashed a car, and they did nothing with that information. Like nothing, nothing, nothing. And I, I can't, I can't think of another another equivalent. Like I, I kind of get where Felipe is coming from, but to your point, like I, I don't know what the recourse is here. That yeah, it's it's horrendous that they knew in season, and maybe they probably should have disqualified. They they should have they should have done an investigation. They should have disqualified Renault from that race. But again, it doesn't change the outcome of the championship. That there's just there's no precedence for for terminating an entire race from the calendar. 
punishing all of the entrants that if you're going to punish anyone, you you punish the team that committed the egregious act of cheating, but that doesn't change the outcome in the championship. And also, I, I love Felipe Massa. He's, he's a phenomenal talent, a great human being, a great representative of the state of Brazil. But there were so many, there were so many mistakes that he and his team made in 2008 that really cost him the championship that this is, this isn't the one I think that he should maybe reflect on as having robbed him of the champ, the opportunity to hold that trophy. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too. Like if uh, you go and read some of the stories here, that uh, apparently Nelson Piquet Senior, who we've talked about for some rather unpleasant things uh, on this podcast more recently, apparently he went to former race director uh, Charlie Whiting at the end at the at that Brazilian Grand Prix and basically blocked the, the 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 door to Charlie's office so nobody else could come in and basically said uh, you know that uh, that uh, Briatore ordered. PK Jr. to crash his car, knowing that uh, Charlie Whiting would, would would take that and pass that along to Bertie Ecclestone and, and Max Mosley, I suppose, or whoever it was. And then uh, apparently when they did bring some investigators in, in 2009, um, PK then did... Uh, did then say again that um, that you know he had told uh, Charlie Whiting the previous year, but you know it's just I I don't know like this that that whole story at the time you know really didn't sit well with me and it's kind of funny I mean is as crazy as like that whole Abu Dhabi twenty twenty one thing was the way that that race finished up and the way the circumstances in which Max won that race and that championship is uh you know is, is a black cloud for some people and understandably so i mean if you go back to like that period of time first crash gate and then spy gate i mean that that 15 years ago was there was some pretty pretty shady things going on i mean i i don't want to downplay the seriousness of what happened in abu dhabi but i mean that that almost i wouldn't say pales in comparison but i mean like you know, certainly like that, that crash gate thing was pretty shady. I mean, Spygate was, you know, absolutely scandalous. And I, I kind of hope that, that we'd moved away from that. And unfortunately, that controversy in Abu Dhabi came back. But I sort of kind of feel like in a way, it's a kind of different you know, can't you know, kettle of fish, right? You know, you know hey, what just, I mean. Just while we're reminiscing that that was a dark period for Formula One. Don't forget that seven of the teams in Formula One: Ferrari, BMW, Sauber, Toyota, Renault, Braun GP, Red Bull, and Toro Rosso were on the verge of breaking away from Formula One in the FIA That's World right. Championship to form their own comp- kind of like comp- competing series because they were so dissatisfied with the way that the sport was being governed and regulated and and the, and the way that prize money was being distributed. Like the sport was in a horrendous place. And also let's not forget that this was during the global financial crisis where we had teams that were bailing on the sport on mass because the manufacturers didn't want to keep them in. Like it was, it was an ugly dark period for formula one. That's for darn sure. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there's uh, anything more that we can uh, add to this one. So why don't we uh, go on to the next story? We're going to stick with uh, with uh, Lewis Hamilton. And uh, according to Lewis on, uh, on an article in motorsportweek.com, he believes that the new Formula One uh, regulations that were introduced uh, last year in 2022, that they, they haven't delivered despite having that extra year to, to work on them and I guess sort of refine them, I would say perfect them. And that was because they were delayed, of course, uh, because of the, uh, the, the COVID season in 2020. Anyways, uh, Lewis, um, he said, um, quote, nope, it's the same as the past, end quote, when he was asked about uh, dirty air uh, that are, you know, 
being uh, you know produced uh, by the, uh, the the card cars. It was he goes on to say, "quote I think last year for us was pretty bad with the balancing because you've got the turbulence and the uh, the balancing. Whereas this year we don't have the balancing, so we have uh, less issues following cars. I think still a little bit better than the previous generation of cars, but it hasn't delivered on everything that it said it would. So got some improvements to make, hopefully for the future." end quote i don't know if there's anything really earth shattering in, in, in lewis's comments i think that uh, he's more or less is saying what everybody i think most of us have have reached that conclusion that you know and, and the funny thing is too we, we've seen like hints of it at times like it's delivered some exciting racing but i think you, know, you could pretty much say the same thing for the the, the previous uh, generation of formula one cars as well okay the next one I, I don't know what to make of this one this is um you know a comment made by Stefano Domenicali, the CEO of Formula One, he believes that uh, Formula One is capable of organizing more than 30 Grand Prix per season. So we're at 23 this year. Or do, do we get 23? Are we down to 23? We, yeah, 23. Okay, I can remember yeah. if we ended up with 23 and then we was down to 22 because we lost China. It was 24. We went down to 23. Regardless, 23 or 24, it's 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 a lot of racing. However, Domenicali believes that they can get more than 30. And I'm really, you know, I, I wouldn't say, well, maybe I'm skeptical about it. I, I just, uh, the, I, the opinion that I'm at is like, really? I, I can't see how that would be possible. Anyways, uh, he was uh, quoted uh, by a, a Melbourne newspaper saying the following, quote, we are in a push mode with everything. We are living in a wonderful moment with enormous attention around the world, uh, diversity, women, girls with uh, watching racing, everything. Let's be fair. Bernie invented Formula One, which all of us uh, who now run this business should always remember. But it is a different sport now. The world of entertainment and the context of Formula One have changed. End quote. So. I don't know. I mean, certainly it's, this is it's it, going to happen. A different world. You, you think it's, it's going to happen? Yeah, it's it's going to happen, and and I I kind of explain why it can't happen in the moment because the current Concord Agreement caps the championship. I guess twenty four or twenty five races. I can never remember which, but ultimately the Concord Agreement is going to be due for renegotiation soon. And and I promise you that that FOM is going to push hard for twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty races. And I think the reality is that. Formula One FOM is really interested in maximizing their asset that they bought this for $4 million. And of course, I think by buying it, it was more just about inheriting a lot of debt and some mismanaged financing. But ultimately, it's their, it's their asset now and they have every right to monetize it however they wish. And I think the reality is, and, and what Stefano Domenicali is speaking to here is that there are other potential race organizers lining up and waving checks in the direction of FOM. And I think if you have five additional race organizers that are offering $50 million a piece, how can you, how can you conceivably turn down a quarter of a billion dollars of additional race sanctioning income that I think we're going to get there? And I think we're going to see a couple of things that next year's calendar is going to be vastly different than this year. And I think it's going to be re-engineered, reconfigured to be far more regionally pocketed, meaning that we'll have a slate of races in North America and we'll have a slate of races in Asia and we'll have a slate of races in, in different places. But they're going to start compartmentalizing the calendar to make it much more efficient from a traveling perspective. And I think they're going to beat up some of the existing race organizers to accept new places on the calendar to accommodate that. Like We can't be crossing the grow globe as much as we are, one, from a sustainability and environmental perspective, but also that if they want to get 30 races onto the calendar or 28 or 29, they're going to have to compartmentalize and regionalize it a little bit. And I think we're going to see that 
next season. The other thing, and I couldn't find a really good definitive source on this, but there there was reporting that suggested that FOM may have visited Vietnam recently. And again, I, I'm sharing a rumor at this point, not something that I can source to a really great writer or publication, but that there's rumors that they are very close to reaching an agreement to go to Vietnam, which I thought would never happen, as well as potentially adding South Africa in the near future. We know that China's going to be back next year, but we could see that 25 race cap pretty quickly. And the other rumor that's being speculated is, and we're going to get to this in a couple of minutes, is that FOM is pushing the Japanese race organizers very, very hard to accept a March date. And the reason they want to push for a March date is because they want to be able to cluster Japan and China and potentially potentially a Vietnam race in the spring so they don't have to crisscross as much as they do. By all accounts, Singapore isn't willing to accept any other date, but if they can get three races clustered together, I think that would be an accomplishment for them. So I have this later in the outline, so we might as well cover it right now, but the Japanese race organizers, for whatever reason, have always been adamant that they have that October slot, despite the fact that it's monsoon season, but they're also at a negotiating disadvantage because they pay significantly less money than most other races on the calendar. And I think because of that, Liberty has a little bit more leverage in dictating where they're going to end up on the calendar. But I think next year's calendar is going to be very different, and it's going to demonstrate the blueprint that's going to enable Liberty to get to 30 races in our lifetime, in the next five years, for sure. Yeah, but I got a question. Is this going to be um, you know, just uh, you know, enacting the framework to expand up to 30 races? Does that mean that automatically we're going to see another five races on the calendar? Because something it has to expand somewhere. I mean, they're going to have to start the season earlier. They're going to have to end it later than they have before. And you know, it's kind of crazy because you think about it that if they have like, you know, we're at 24 races right now, you could race four years and basically have like 100 Grand Prix under your belt i mean in the old days that was a career <laughs> now yeah. i mean you could be the, 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 <laughs> so yeah, true. like seriously that that was yeah, like somebody's so career Great point. now that that's half a dozen you know seasons at most which is yeah max has got very, like 450 grand prix or something i don't know yeah exactly and 350 race victories i mean it's insane yeah, but yeah. you know joking aside uh, I, you know i just kind of wonder i'm i'm a little bit I wouldn't say nervous about this, but I, I feel like they're trying to cash in a little bit on the popularity oh, and the interest. 100%. And it's almost like, you know, like kind of expanding too much too soon. And I could see like like a couple of like really hectic years and then renegotiating like a, a Concord agreement, say 10 years in the future, and then contracting it down again. But who knows? Maybe I could be wrong. Maybe they could find five additional uh, venues but then it also makes me wonder like you know what would be the the the, the human cost you know like at some point you know, m- maybe we see the stars of like, you know, like Max Verstappen or something, these young guys that come onto the scene and take the world by storm and win a couple or several championships and think, you know, like I've been doing this for five, six, seven, eight years. And, you know, where there's 30 races a week or a year, that's 30 weekends a year. I'm away from home, plus all the other demands on my schedule. It's just maybe like if that becomes a thing, maybe we see the stars retire younger and sooner. I don't know. That's just, you know, maybe so people- an unintended consequence. So many people make this comment about being sympathetic and and feeling bad for the crew that is assigned the travel duties for a Formula One team, like the mechanics and the engineers and and the pit crew, blah, 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 blah. Like, oh, it's so horrible. They're on the road 200 days a year, blah, blah, blah. I mean, ultimately, this is what they sign up for. This is what they aspire to. And I think you're right that it would be 
significantly more challenging to do a 30 race calendar than a 23 or 24 race calendar. But I mean, ultimately, these are very smart teams that are backed by a significant amount of money. And maybe what you do is you start alternating pit crews. Like maybe you have mechanics that do half the calendar and you have mechanics that do the other half of the calendar. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of unique, innovative things they could do to lessen the burden on people. And as for the drivers, and this is one of the reasons that I, I advocate that there never be a cost cap or a salary cap for drivers. Like they, they, they're owed every penny. They have the leverage to negotiate. And I think they deserve it. They're the ones that are putting their lives on the line every time they get in that car. But again, if you look at a driver today, are they really driving that many more laps than they were 20 years ago? Like you and I lived in a period where there would be in-season testing. There'd be two weeks of winter testing. There would, they were just in the car more. And I think when you look at how much they've shortened the practice sessions and the fact that winter testing really doesn't exist at all, it's three days. So really three sessions for each driver, maybe four, that they're not in the car as much as they would have been. So the travel's there for sure. But I think every Formula One driver, if given the opportunity, would sign up for a 30 race Grand Prix simply because they'd like to be in the car. It's what they're doing. It's what they want to do. Um, sure. It presents financial upside. Uh, I think I think they would do it. And again, I don't have sympathy for the teams. They could find ways to lessen the burden on their people if they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. Hey, uh, Hammy, let's take another quick break. Uh, we'll come back. Still plenty of things to talk about. We'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. And uh, kind of going back to Ferrari, who we talked about uh, a little bit earlier. Apparently, a uh, new team uh, team principal, Frederick Vasseur, believes that uh, the true um, progress that Ferrari has made so far this year does not um, it hasn't been reflected in the results that they had in Australia a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, we saw uh, Charles Leclerc crashing out on the very first lap after uh, you know touching wheels with Lance Stroll in turn three or four, whatever it was, and then Carlos Sainz getting uh, mixed up uh, at the end at a restart after one of the many safety cars during that race. And uh, well, you know, we haven't really seen it too much. I mean, it didn't really look well. I mean, Sainz didn't look especially competitive uh, compared to the Red Bulls and the Mercedes in that race and uh, you know made headlines for all the wrong reasons anyways uh, I find this a bit of a um, you know an interesting quote from uh, Fred Vasseur had to say quote today's result not scoring points does not reflect the progress we have made as a team we have taken a step forwards in terms of pure performance and even more importantly we had a decent and consistent race on the various tire compounds including the hard uh, qualifying did not match our potential our initial reaction is the one of frustration with Charles clearly unlikely to be involved in a racing incident at the start. It was a good call to bring Carlos in under the first safety car, but following the red flag, he had to start again from P11, from which he recovered very well. The penalty had a devastating result on the final result for him, but despite this, we go back to Marinello knowing that we are moving in the right direction, and we are now have three weeks to keep working on optimizing and updating the SF23 for the coming races. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, Mark, but I don't really have anything more to add to that one then if you know fred if you believe that's the case and you know prove it <laughs> you know, and, you know that and it sounds like they're working hard but uh, i don't know uh how much uh, they're they, they really have uh improved okay the next one so water apparently is coming to the miami marina the, this year mark do you want to talk about this one 
This is probably a bit of a misleading title, but of course, last year, I think we all <laughs> we all got such a kick out of the Miami Grand Prix Marina. So, of course, they carted in some beautiful yachts and boats, things that you and I could never afford in a million years, and we could probably never afford to step our foot onto, but they parked these at, at one of the corners, on the inside of one of the corners. And of course, what they had done is they built up decking up to the side of the cars, and then they yeah, painted, yeah. I don't know if they painted or they plot kind of applied this vinyl to the top of this plywood to give the illusion of water. And I think a lot of people got a real kick out of that last year. But immediately adjacent to that this year, they are introducing, or the Miami Grand Prix organizers are introducing a brand new Sunset Cabanas experience. So if you're not content chilling and catching some sun on the yachts, if you're not content sitting in the grandstands, you can now buy a ticket to be in the Sunset Cabanas where there will be unlimited food uh, and uh, drinks provided to you. But they are actually constructing two pools uh, immediately adjacent to where those boats are positioned. So if you want, you can get a Sunset Cabana, you'll have a beautiful recliner, you'll have unlimited food, and you'll be just meters away from the action at that corner. Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of like when I saw it last year, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I didn't think it was, you know, I didn't hate it. I was just kind of like, I, I just thought it looked a little bit funny knowing that there isn't any water immediately adjacent to Hard Rock Stadium. But I thought the concept was kind of uh, unique anyways. Okay, um, going back to Ferrari and uh, team principal uh, Fred Vasseur, this is a story that comes from uh, Andrew Benson, who's the chief uh, Formula One writer at uh, BBC. And uh, the article is, uh, you know, some quotes from uh, Vasseur, who is just uh, reminiscing, reminiscing or reflecting or commenting on the uh, the Red Bull budget cap uh, penalty from last year, which uh, he called it uh, very light. And, uh, you know, Vasseur basically said that, uh, that Red Bull have done a very good job, but uh, acknowledges or, you know, uh, states that the, the, the penalty that they were given for that cost cap uh, overspend last year was very low. So they were given a, a $7 million fine and a 10% reduction in their aero uh, research uh, for, for this year. Anyways, uh, Vasseur had to say, quote, I'm still convinced that the penalty was very light. Uh, if you can Consider we will improve the car's performance by a bit than less than one second over the seasons in terms of arrow. You get a penalty of one-tenth of this. It is the equivalent to a loss of 0.01 seconds. As it is not a linear progression, it is probably less. And as you are allowed to spend this money uh, somewhere else on weight saving and so on, for me, the penalty is marginal. I don't want to say they didn't do a good job because honestly, they did a very good job on the car. I'm not trying to find an excuse at all, but if you ask me if the penalty is too light, I say yes, end quote. So, you know, Dude, you, you just knew something like this would be yeah. said at some point, right? You know? Look, this is this is the way this is the way I look at this conversation because this percolates up every couple of months where you have a team principal that reflects back on the the breach that Red Bull had committed last year of the cost cap. And it makes me so mad. It's kind of like, let's say I have a 13-year-old daughter and she breaks curfew and she comes home and my wife and I take away her phone and then ground her. It's like two months later reflecting back on like, well, that punishment was too light. I'm like, you, you are the parents and you created the rules. And of course- Ferrari isn't the FIA. They don't apply the rules, but the rules that are in the financial regulations. So of course, there's sporting regulations, there's technical regulations, and there's financial regulations. The rules that are in there were agreed upon by the teams. And I can't, I can't hammer this home enough that the teams agreed. 
FOM agreed. The FIA agreed to administer them as they were written, as the teams asked for them. And if you look, there's a financial penalty, there's a minor sporting penalty, and there's a material sporting penalty. The rules as they were written were agreed to by the teams. So for somebody like Frederick Vasseur to come out six, seven, eight months later and complain about the application of the rules and how very, quote unquote, very light they were, that doesn't stand up to me because you agreed, you were the team principal of a Formula One team. You agreed to these rules. You were influential in the writing and, and the verbiage of the rules. So I, I've had enough of teams talking about this and commenting on how light the penalty was. If you wanted a fiercer, stricter, more punishing penalty, you should have asked for it in the regulation. And the next time that the financial regulations are rewritten, I'm going to look very carefully at section 9.1, article eight, because I want to see if they've amended it to be much, much stricter. Because by the sounds of it, all of the teams minus Red Bull want harsher penalties. So let's see if they back that up the next time they rewrite the financial regulations to reflect fiercer penalties. So I, I like Frederick Vesseur, but I just don't have any time for these comments. It's like you're complaining about the penalty that was applied based on the rules that you helped create. Yeah, yeah, e exactly. Um, you know, another quote uh, from uh, Frederick Vasseur. This is um, an article that uh, comes from therace.com, uh, written by Ed Straw and Scott Mitchell Malm, and uh, just talking about, uh, you know, Ferrari and what their plans for the year are. They've basically ruled out a B car, which is something that's been speculated about when it comes to uh, Mercedes and, you know, what they have with the W14 and the fact, uh, you know, they, they, they admitted that um, that they had B plan or plans for a B car if the, the, the uh, you know, this concept didn't play out. So Ferrari's basically dismissed that, and uh, Frederick Vasseur says to to start a new project like that in the middle of a season from scratch is um, you know is, is difficult if not uh, you know Im impossible to do. So he says that um, th they feel that they're going the right direction, and they feel that they have uh, tons of room for improvement in the car that uh, they, they they have. So he feels that uh, they're still uh, be able to get uh, more more points on the arrow, get a better uh, balance, better stability, and he believes that that. That's uh, the direction that uh, makes sense and uh, for them to, to develop and to, to move in. And that's uh, probably that, uh, what they're going to do. So, you know, we, we always t talk about how, you know, Red Bull tends to take up a lot of real estate on this uh, show. It seems like uh, you know, uh, Ferrari's getting a lot of uh, real estate on uh, this program uh, this week. We just want to talk about this one because uh, this was you know, a little bit kind of surprising. This was uh, an Instagram post made by Charles Leclerc a couple of days ago over the long weekend. Charles said, uh, Hey everyone, for the past few months, my home address has someone, uh, somehow become public, leading to people gathering beneath my apartment, ringing my bell, and asking for pictures and autographs. Well, I'm always happy to be there for you, and I truly appreciate your support please respect my privacy and refrain from coming to my house i'll make sure to stop for everyone when you see me on the streets or at the track but i won't be coming downstairs if you visit my home your support both in person and on social media means the world to me but there's a boundary that should not be crossed happy easter everyone and uh yeah i mean it's th hard to argue with that and it's just unfortunate in this uh, this day and age that you know charles could be doxxed in that way that his home address could be you know made public and you know, I, I guess that, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because you want to know how people like Charles Leclerc lives. I mean, there, there is a line you shouldn't cross and definitely walking up to, to Charles Leclerc's door and knocking on it or ringing the bell and asking for, for photos or autographs or whatever is, uh, you know, that's a bit over the line. Even, you know, going to his house and taking a selfie in front of the front door. I, I guess maybe that's, you know, 
splitting hairs a little bit, but that seems a little bit less intrusive. So not really, uh, no, not really too cool that people have been doing that. So next one is not Ferrari, not Red Bull, but it is um, a no, sorry, a Mercedes story. And a poor apparently a Total Wolf has uh, cracked the one billion dollar mark with his own personal fortune. This is an article that comes from PlanetF1.com and uh, written by Jamie Woodhouse. So uh, amazing that uh, you know. Toto worth over a billion dollars that uh, I, I can't even comprehend that. Uh, he still probably can't afford to buy a house in Metro Vancouver, but still, <laughs> <laughs> why would yeah, why would he want to? Why would he want to? Anything uh, to add to that, uh, Mark? Uh, you know, the, he, I mean, that's 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 a pretty pretty big uh, pretty big uh, pretty big number, right? I, I need to better understand, and I promise we'll do this for a future show, but it's important to understand that he's a one-third owner of the Mercedes-AMG Formula One team. He owns a slice, Ineos owns a slice, and Daimler owns a slice of that team. They all have one-third shares in that team. And of course, as Formula One, the popularity of Formula One has exploded, the valuation of the teams have exploded, and so too has his the worth of his fortune. So he, he got in at the right time and took a big chunk of a team that has experienced immeasurable success. But I think I owe it to the group to better. And when I say the group, I mean, everyone listening at home. I I feel like I owe it to everybody to provide a better explanation in the future as to how he became a part owner of what was effectively and is still the Mercedes works team because yeah he's done incredible work both as a team principal and as a business person as well and it is funny too because prior to making the transition over to try to prior to making the transition over to Mercedes he owned a chunk a small chunk but he owned a chunk of the Williams team at one point as well but kudos to him for finding his way onto the billionaire list yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just uh, amazing. Um, next story uh, goes um, has to do with the now cancelled uh, Malaysian Grand Prix, and uh, this is a bit of a, an interesting one because you know when, when this uh, race fell off the calendar a couple of years ago, did did it fall off now before COVID or yeah, during eight, COVID? 18, it's it's seventeen. Uh, it's been a while. It, it's been several years now, and you know the the whole COVID period tends to be a, a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a little bit uh, blurry at best. Um, anyways, uh, the uh, the sport minister in Malaysia has kind of really kind of poured some water on the, you know, any, any hopes that uh, we might see a Malaysian Grand Prix again, which which is too bad because I always liked the the, the track at Sepang. You know, like um, I always enjoyed the races there, but. And she was uh, basically saying that you know if they had the money and the, the 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 funds to upgrade the track and host a Formula One race that they would do it. So it doesn't sound like this is going to happen at any time in the uh, you know in the near future. And uh, the, basically the quote was quote motorsports is expensive and the ministry does not want SIC to bear the burden alone. If it is a sport, it should be developed uh, together with the ministry. End quote. So you know there's millions and millions of dollars involved in Formula One and uh, they have a huge profit ma- margin hosting. A Formula One race is no joke. There are massive benefits in hosting a Formula One race, which undoubtedly help boost the country's popularity and economy. There's a large amount of money needed to uh, for the track development and other expenditures related to hosting Formula One in uh, in the in the country, and that comes from uh, FirstSports.com article that's uh, written by Sugantha Mina. So there you go. Doesn't sound like it's going to come back uh, anytime soon, uh, Mr. Hamilton. Definitely okay. not. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. 
um, I guess one of my my most lasting memories would be when Lewis's car let go and his his engine blew in 2016, which uh, I wouldn't say was the final nail in the coffin of his um, title cha- you know, challenge that year uh, versus Nico Rosberg. I mean, but from there on out, Nico was just he was just managing those races and only finishing where he needed to. I mean, I know Lewis basically won every race there on out, but Nico just played it very very conservative conservatively pardon me uh, you know after that uh, that happened okay so coming up uh, very very soon is going to be the uh, the Baku Grand Prix at uh, in Baku city in Azerbaijan and Christian Horner believes it's absolutely ludicrous to host a, sp- a sprint race in uh, Baku uh, Mark what do you make about these the, these comments I mean Christian Horner is not really a person who holds back uh, what, what he thinks and he uh, the, the reason is is that um, he thinks it's crazy to do that um, is the, the the potential for crashes and damages that uh, you know we can see happen. I mean, uh, we, we've had some notable crashes there in recent times, including uh, Lance Stroll and Max Verstappen having some big crashes there on the on the start finish straight. W- w- you want to add anything to that, uh, Hammy? Yeah, the exact quote here, and this is in Formula One Uno, is the reality, and this is from Christian Horner, the reality is that it's absolutely ludicrous to be doing the first spring race of the year in a street race. Like, So I think they they wrote spring, but I think they mean sprint race of the year in a street race like Azerbaijan. But I think from a spectac- or spectacle point of view, from a fan point of view, it's probably going to be one of the most exciting races of the year. From a cost cap perspective, all you can do is trash your car and it costs a lot of money around there. So one race is enough in Baku. The fact we've got two, yeah, there could well be some action there, but that's part of the challenge and it's part of the task that we've got. Hopefully we can tidy up the format for the sprint races coming up so they are a bit more dynamic. I know that the sporting director has been working hard on that and hopefully we can get that finalized. So yeah, sprint race in Azerbaijan is something to certainly be wary of. And I think you, you made the point, right, that the concern here is that crashes are expensive and Baku is a tight punishing street circuit. And we've seen plenty of crashes there in the past. And I think what he's saying is, Hey, it's a real risk financially to race there once. And he says, when you do a sprint race, you're effectively almost doubling the risk of a crash because you're going out there. And again, this year, we're going to have two qualifying sessions in one practice. So there's going to be even more risk of, of crash. But again, and I said this a couple of minutes ago with Frederick Rassour, you signed up for this. Y'all mm-hmm. signed up for this, that this is what you want because it increases the valuation of the sanctioning fees and that goes into the constructor's prize money and as a pot that you all split at the end of the year based on how you finish in the championship. That if you if you don't like this, don't sign up for that and don't take the money. But from a fan's perspective, I totally agree that this is going to be a phenomenal way to kickstart the middle part of the season. Like I'm so used to coming back from a month long break and saying the second half of the season, but to kickstart the spring early summer portion of the calendar, that it's going to be phenomenal. I can't wait to see it. I'm super amped, super pumped about the new sprint race weekend structure format. It looks fantastic. I think it's going to be amazing. Uh, and again, Baku is always, a. Uh, uh, makes for exciting, unique races. Um, but I kind of get where he's coming from. At the same time, I don't have any sympathy because again, you signed up for this because <laughs> it adds it adds money to the prize pot that you all split at the end of the championship. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, nothing, uh, I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't have anything uh, further to to add to your comments. So let's move on to the next one. And uh, Gunther Steiner, um, in an uh, interview with um, Adam Cooper from Motorsport, or, sorry, Autosport.com, says that Formula One shouldn't tweak their rules to try and rein in red 
Red Bull, considering the the big advantage that uh, they they have. So the the quote was uh, when he was asked by Adam Cooper was, uh, sorry, Gunther saying, "quote The sport is the main thing that we have. The show is secondary, but I think it will sort itself out. And then we still have got a good race going on in the front now with Checo and Max. That doesn't seem to be without sparks, without show. There's some show element in that one now, but I'm not worried about the other people will catch up." Um, end quote. So then he was uh, then followed that up with another comment saying uh, when he was asked about the current rules he said quote i would say they work obviously at the moment red bull has an advantage but i wouldn't say they'll keep that advantage now for the next uh, 20 races i'm not so sure about that because everybody will catch up and hopefully we'll find out how red bull came to this advantage and we we can copy it or do something similar everybody will be working hard and then you never have to forget red bull has got this uh, penalty from last year they can do less development in the wind tunnel this year so they cannot move a lot ahead anymore in theory so you have to see but they did a fantastic job and therefore you cannot blame the regulation for that because somebody does a better job than anyone else they should get the advantage end quote so you know that that's interesting like you know he's uh, he's kind of really acknowledging the situation that that red bull have and, and the penalty that they have but i mean he's uh, compared to fred vasseur who also acknowledged that uh, that red bull have a good job you know gunther is uh, basically saying you know, you know, more power to them. Good luck, you know, but they're going to be able to, you know, develop less than the rest of us in season. And so in theory, we should be able to close that gap. Whereas, you know, you know, Fred Vasseur said the penalty was too late, you know, like here you say, yeah, but that's what you, what you signed up to. I mean, Gunther seems to have a little bit more realistic uh, take on the situation, which I find uh, a little bit... I find a little bit more, I don't know, do you want to call it self-aware? I think he seems a a little bit more, I I think, in tune with the situation than maybe some of the others, right? These comments to me sound like something that I would expect to come out of the Toro Rosso camp that, hey, look, you know what? You're generally aligned with the current structure and format of the championship because it's benefiting your sister team. But this is coming from Gunther Steiner, who's part of the Ferrari camp, and he has has nothing to gain Mm -hmm. by advocating for the current format. But I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for him because I, I think it's brave comments for him to make because he's certainly not benefiting and his team's certainly not benefiting. Ferrari certainly not benefiting by Red Bull dominance, but I absolutely do agree that we live in this we live in this really peculiar place with Formula One where we constantly have these massive swings of dominance from from McLaren to 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 Renault and from Williams to McLaren and then we go into the early part of the knots and and Red Bull dominates and then Mercedes dominates and then Red Bull dominates and it's it's all about certain teams coming to grips and making certain engineering decisions before other teams do that gives them a real advantage and then the the conversation the debate is always what could we do to to negate that advantage or what can we do to bring the field closer together and mm-hmm. i think typically it's tinkering 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 with the regulations and of course the regulation set that was introduced for 22 was designed to really bring the field closer together because you limited the amount of money that teams could spend and you also limited the variation of engineering and design that could happen because you tightened up the regulations ultimately it doesn't seem to have made a huge difference at least not yet but to me the the fear the risk is always that 
One, you tighten up the regulations so much that this effectively becomes a spec series. And when I talk about a spec series, I basically mean all the teams are running the same chassis with the same power unit, that they're all running the same car. So really mm -hmm. at that point, it just becomes a challenge amongst drivers and let the best driver win. But Formula One's more than that. It's, it's a driver's challenge and it's an engineering challenge. It's developing and building the best car. And I think the other risk that we have, and I don't like to see this either, as much as I don't like to see any single team dominate the championship, I hate to see the rules manipulated to bring one team closer to the pack. And I think yes. that's what Gunther Stein is really talking yep. about here, which is, look, you Red Bull have too much of an advantage. We are going to start introducing technical directives and changes to the sporting or technical regulations that are at a disadvantage to you, that are designed to negate the advantage that you've built up fairly. I say, I say, quote unquote, fairly because of the cost breach last year, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, yeah, the advantages yeah. that you've built up. So I, I actually agree with them that it's this tough and I have this tough kind of internal debate, which is, yeah, bring the field closer together, but I don't want a spec series. And then a team gets out in front like, well, you know, we need to bring them closer to the pack, but I also don't want to negate the advantages that they built up by following the rules. So it's tough and it's it's tough. And unfortunately, that's just been the trend of Formula One is that historically, at least in the last two or three decades, we've had periods, periods of dominance by separate teams. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, I mean, even if you go back to like the 90s, we had like the and the 80s, we had dominance by uh, for, uh, sorry, um, Williams and McLaren and then Williams again, then Ferrari. And then like there, there's always one team that seems to do better than everyone else. And I think that was the big hope that these regs that were introduced last year would uh, really level the, the the playing field and we'd see more parity that uh, you know all the teams would be more on an even keel but uh, I guess not that we we've kind of talked about that uh, quite a bit so let's uh, move through the the last couple and we'll uh, stories here and then we'll head over to MotoGP corner for an update so uh, Franz Tost uh, the team principal at AlphaTauri said that with uh, changing all the staff uh, it improves uh, ties uh, or improving ties with the uh, Red Bull is uh, in, in progress which is kind of like interesting I I, I I was kind of under the assumption that uh, there was already a little bit more of a closer working between the the, the, the teams. Anyways, uh, Tosta told Sport One in an interview, quote, the aero department was reorganized. We have separated with some employees. I'm now expecting an increase in performance from the new people. I don't want to name any names yet, but the responsibility is now divided between three people. We can't just approach uh, capable people from Red Bull as Aston Martin did. The newcomers they signed were able to develop the car from an early stage, but the cooperation with Red Bull is now being intensified. However, the regulations are very specific. You just can't copy parts, end quote. So I guess that sounds, you know, to me, kind of reading between the lines is maybe they're getting more support from Red Bull to develop the car that they have rather than doing a control C, control V, and <laughs> basically copying a Red Bull and rebadging it with an Alpha Tower, which obviously is, uh, you know, against the, 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 the regulations. But I think for me, the main work, you know, takeaway from this one is that there seems to be maybe, you know, not quite as much, you know, you know, cooperation between the teams as maybe I, I, I thought myself, but maybe that was just, uh, I had the wrong impression. So finally, last one here before we head on over to uh, MotoGP for, uh, corner is Michael Schumacher, the seven-time world champion uh, and uh, Formula One legend. His uh, hometown, where he grew up, is uh, you know 
facing somewhat of a grim fate. Uh, it's a, a village that has 12 remaining uh, residents is going to be basically uh, torn down to make way for the largest open coal pit mine in Germany, which will leave almost uh, uh, nothing left. And uh, so that is, uh, you know, there's going to be only a few key pace places that uh, will remain standing, which will include uh, uh, Michael Schumacher's, uh, you know, child at home and the legendary go-kart track where he uh, learned and, you know, mastered his skills. So that's the town of uh, Kerpen Mannheim. And, um, yeah, sad to sad to hear. And it was also the town where he married his wife, uh, Karina. So a bit of a, a sad uh, story. Anyways, uh, Mark, time for MotoGP quarter. Don't have the, the music keyed up for you this week. Anyways, a couple of uh, interesting stories here involving um, uh, Valentino Rossi. And then also MotoGP has named a new person as their commercial head. So take this away, please, sir. I think the big story I want to start with, and thank you and shout out to everybody that forwarded me the story over the weekend, is that MotoGP, according to Motorsport.com, has named former NBA boss Dan Rossomondo as their new commercial head. And this is a big new story because if you've been listening recently, and I have been doing, Joe Santucci, I'm looking at you. I have been doing a much more consistent job of delivering MotoGP to the masses. You challenged me and I'm delivering, damn it. <laughs> but, uh, but Dorna, which is the basically the Liberty, the FOM equivalent on the MotoGP side, has really been struggling with commercializing the product, uh, the sport, especially given the fact that their long-term transcendent superstar Valentino Rossi has now retired. They've really, really struggled to sell tickets and get eyeballs on the TV. And there's a host of reasons for all of this, but they've exited. They've exited the individual, or they did a few months ago, that was their commercial head. And they've onboarded Former NBA Senior Vice President Don Rossomondo as new Chief Commercial Officer. He is going to come on board effective immediately. He was in Coda last weekend or the weekend before uh, to be part. Actually, I don't think it's last the for our weekends. I think it's upcoming. Maybe this weekend. I should probably know. But he's going <laughs> to be in. He's going to be in Austin. He's going to be in Texas because that'll be his effectively his first day on the track. And he is tasked with turning around the financial fortunes of MotoGP. And I would argue that MotoGP is still the finest, most competitive, most balanced racing champion global racing championship. There is. I, I think it's phenomenal. I just think they do a terrible job of marketing the sport. I think they do a terrible job of marketing the individual stars. I think they need to find ways to to creep into and and grows the grow the awareness and familiarity of the sport in major markets like the United States, where it has had a footprint in the past. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we had three races in the UK or in the US. We we were obviously in California and we were in India Indianapolis and we were in Coda and Two of those races dropped off, and now we're only only in Austin, which is a real real shame. But I think there's some significant work to do. Uh, before joining the NBA back in 2004, writes Motorsport.com, he worked for the promotions department of Madison Square Garden in New York and for the entertainment agency IMG. In the NBA, he held roles related to marketing, where he oversaw international business development and sales to the media. He was born in New Jersey and is expected to make his debut in the MotoGP paddock next week for the America's Grand Prix at the Circuit of the Americas. In addition to directing MotoGP's commercial department. He will also lead the group in charge of the digital business, aiming to expand its presence and scope. And that's an interesting point because one of the things that a lot of people have reached out to ask me about recently is, hey, you know what? You've got you, you've got me intrigued. I want to check out MotoGP. How can I how can I stream the races? And then it's like $480 million a year to 
to get the to get the app and watch the races, which is hugely more expensive than Formula One, which is a real shame. And I think that's probably one of the first thing he's going to look at is how accessible is the app and what does the pricing look like relative to comparable global sports. The other story this week, and in light of my comment about Valentino Rossi, is Valentino Rossi may not be riding a MotoGP bike. He may not be contending for podiums like he did for the better part of two decades, but he now does own a form or MotoGP team. That think about it this way: think about Lewis Hamilton retiring in two years and having his own team in the grid two years later winning races. And that's what Valentino Rossi is doing. VR46, his MotoGP team, had their maiden MotoGP win in Argentina behind the phenomenal ride from Marco Bezzecchi. Very, very cool, very neat story. And even if he isn't on a bike, his presence is still felt at every single Grand Prix because there is literally a team on the grid bearing his name. And that team is now a MotoGP Grand Prix race winner. And that's something you can never take away from them. And I suspect that the Ducati-based team is going to continue to build on that as the season progresses. And who knows, maybe they'll be contending for a championship by the end of the year. Yeah, who knows? It's still cool to see him involved uh, because, I mean, he's one of those uh, people that really sort of transcended the sport. I mean, you might not know a lot about uh, MotoGP, but most people who know anything about motorsports in general have heard about Valentino Rossi. So glad to see that he's uh, still involved. Do you do you mind if I do a quick shout out to one of our listeners? Yeah, of course. So Marshall Marshall sent us an email and I'll make sure to read this again at the beginning of an upcoming podcast, but he sent me an email and I thought this is worth reading. He says, for those wondering how you can get into volunteering and auto racing, most clubs in North America have started or will soon start their 2023 seasons. In Canada, racing is managed under FIA member clubs in the various provinces, largely based out of various tracks across the country. For those in Ontario, there's currently a membership drive aimed at getting new marshals trained and participating in grassroots motor racing events. By volunteering at car and motorcycle racing events, you can earn your race marshal license and eventually be able to work pro events like F1, MotoGP, and IndyCar, not unlike Marshall himself. And he lists this, new Marshall schools will take place at the Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, formerly Motorsport near Bowmanville on May 6th and 7th. Um, And he lists some other specific details here. So I think his message here is one, if you're in Ontario and you're interested in getting involved in grassroots motorsports, reach out to me, reach out to us, and I'll put you in touch with Marshall and give you some more details. But if you're not in Ontario, and I know most of you aren't, you're in other parts of North America, his point here is well taken, which is most of the tracks are starting up their season spring calendar format. They're getting going. So if you are interested, reach out to some of those tracks and get a sense of what's involved because they are always, always looking for volunteers to help create the experiences that allow events to happen at those tracks. And like Marshall says, that's how you find your way. And that's how you ultimately punch your ticket to supporting a Formula One race or MotoGP race or an IndyCar race. Yeah, very, very cool. That's uh, that's awesome. Thank you for passing on that uh, information, Marshall. Uh, you know, I'd love to, you know, if, if I didn't have uh, you know so much on my plate already, then I would uh, love to get involved with uh, something like that. Anyways, uh, I think that's a good place to uh, leave it for for this week, uh, Mark. Thank you to one and all for downloading and listening to the show this week. Uh, thank you uh, to those of you that have left us a kind rating and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And that's it. That's a wrap. Again, there's no race uh, this weekend, but as uh, Mark mentioned off the top of the show, plenty of good things uh, coming your way as we await the next Formula One Grand Prix in a couple of weeks. If you want to get in touch by all 
all means send us a tweet at ScooterF1Pod or an email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. Do have some emails that I've been meaning to reply to, so just haven't gotten around to that. We should do a mailbag suit or show soon again, uh, Mark, when time uh, permits. Anyways, that's it. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.